Welcome to North Coast Chronicles podcast, Tales from the Great Lakes. I'm your host, Helen Brule. Please join me every month on the American Shoreline Podcast Network, ASPN, as we share the nature, history, folklore, and charm of the Great Lakes, America's fourth seacoast. Be sure to check out the entire collection of podcasts on ASPN related to our oceans, coast, and inland seas at coastalnewstoday.com. If you like North Coast Chronicles, please share it with your friends and subscribe on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. In a number of previous episodes, there have been mention of the plethora of cruise ships now serving the Great Lakes. But cruise shipping is nothing new, historically, in the Great Lakes. However, there were decades when there was just no cruise shipping because of the marketplace pressures and regulatory requirements. But today, that has all changed. Joining to share his 30 years of firsthand knowledge of the business of cruise shipping, particularly in the Great Lakes, is Mr. Ralph Deal. Ralph has been a technical and business consultant with a focus on hospitality and maritime transportation. He operated a 226-passenger cruise ship, doing three to 17-night international itineraries in 2001. And this involved coordinating with various federal agencies and 27 ports of call, including the Port of Milwaukee. Ralph will tell us about the challenges and rewards of that business, but he also knows a lot about the golden days of cruise shipping in the Great Lakes. Ralph, thanks for joining us on the podcast today. Thank you very much for inviting me. And with us, as always, is our trusty engineer and my talented co-producer, Tyler Buckingham. Tyler, if you've been counting, you would know that this episode is our 24th. So we are officially celebrating two years. Yay! Wow. Two big years. That's awesome. <laughs> well, it, it couldn't have been done without you and ASPN. And folks, my idea of engaging Tyler on each podcast from the beginning was really a bit of a lark and very last minute. On Our conversations on each episode are not rehearsed, but from the beginning, Tyler, you jumped right in. So thank you for that. Well, thank you for including me in your wonderful show. <laughs> well, you're very nice. It's so nice to be nice to the nice, but you are. And I can't thank you so much for the, your encouragement, support, and ideas of content, which has uh, been really terrific. Our last podcast was on the Great Lakes Circle Tour. The Great Lakes Commission originated the initiative, but admits that it languished over the past dozen or so years due to the lack of formal management. In our conversation with the Commission's Deputy Executive Director, Tom Crane, the episode culminated in a pretty in-depth discussion about how one would update what was originally a road tour around the Great Lakes, directed with physical circle tour signs. Basically, how does one start the task of updating the idea of encouraging people to check out the beautiful byways of the Great Lakes with the whole virtual world at our fingertips? And Tyler, my observation was that our hosting North Coast Chronicles for two years really engineered for us kind of a thick book of facts, figures, and ready activities around the lakes that could be tapped into uh, establishing a new platform for the Circle Tour. And I'm a bit embarrassed about how much I jumped in during the episode to throw out those many activities. But Tyler, what was your perspective on the conversation? My perspective is that the time for a Circle Tour is, is I think, again upon us. Um, I mean, I can I can speak for myself, but I know that I particularly these days enjoy real world experiences, uh, really being out, really experiencing, you know, a mountain, a valley. Uh, and the Great Lakes are such a striking feature in America, in in the country that I live in and was in and from. Uh, the idea of exploring them intimately and getting to know the little communities around them. Uh, their shapes, their depths, 
uh, how they're different, how they're the same, the economies around them. I think that's like a really cool cultural experience for an American or Canadian to have. And uh, it's real. It's real. It's not it's not a YouTube video. It's not uh, as much as I love podcasts. A podcast would be a great companion. But the actual experience of of going out and experiencing the lakes, I think, is is really appealing in this day and age. Well, I noted um, in that episode that I had read about a travel blogger who had um, published that he really wanted to do a whole tour around the Great Lakes. I don't know if it was by bike or or car or combination. Um, and basically, on his own, was looking into what are the regions of the Great Lakes? Where would it work? And on his own, without n- even knowing that there is a circle tour um, and any resources for it, and was kind of plotting out how, why, when, and where. So I thought that, and that was pretty recent. Um, one, it was um, it did highlight the fact that the Circle Tour Initiative out of the Great Lakes Commission has, you know, had not moved forward when they, you know, really kind of established the idea in the late 80s and got it underway in the 90s. Um, and then after that, even third market um, web providers talking about the Circle Tour, and I suppose in order to get ads and, and talk about where you can visit, um, I mean, there's just nothing out there, or there's old sites that haven't been updated in years. So I do think, though, that it's a great idea, and I do think that understanding that um, if you're going to promote um, and share um, the ways in which tourists or people or citizens can enjoy the Great Lakes, uh, it's got to be up to today's you know, virtual standards. And we, we talked at great length about where there's resources, such as um, you know, what if you're a person who wants to um, check out all the lighthouses? Well, you know, the Great Lakes Lighthouse Keepers Association has an inventory of that. Um, I mentioned that in Lake Ontario, um, there is an inventory of best beaches around Lake Ontario. Um, and I'm sure that there are great, there's great resources on where you can go surfing in the Great Lakes. But capturing all that and pulling it all together is really challenging. And I'm, I'll be really interested to hear how the commission um, really jumps in. I know that everybody's excited about it again. Um, the question is, who will maintain it? And, and is it the Great Lakes Commission or a third-party person do it with support from the states and the provinces? I don't know. But it's certainly an effort worth doing. And all I would add to that is that I hope that the tour celebrates not only the, let's just say, the attractions, the uh, shipwrecks and the beautiful hotels and the arts and culture and beauty of the Great Lakes, but also the cultural uh, heritage the old fishing villages, the history, the maritime history uh, that we've covered on this show, Helen. Uh, I've learned so much about that as well, uh, including a, a little bit about the Native American history. And um, I hope that all of that ends up as a part of the tour and featured in the story that the tour tells. I hope so too, because um, we've also talked about the fact that there's now a lot of online tours, right? Tours of of, of shipwrecks, tours of underwater shipwrecks, um, tours of um, museum ships, tours of lighthouses. There's all, you know, it all becomes part of that um, circle tour, whether you're physically on the road, on a boat, on a bicycle, or looking at your computer. So. Um, I'm really interested to see how that goes. And golly, I I hope they take up some of my ideas. Well, 2023, the Great Lakes cruise ship season is poised to be record-breaking. 
Officials expect nearly 170,000 passenger visits, an increase of 15% over 2022, and a total economic impact of $180 million. The passenger increase will be due in part to more ships traversing the freshwater seas, 11 compared to 9 in 2022. The new ships are the Viking Polaris, which is a twin to the huge and luxurious Viking Octantis that debuted in 2022, and the Lloyd Hanseatic Inspiration. Even the folks from the Thunder Bay Marine Sanctuary noted in a past episode on North Coast Chronicles that they expect a number of cruise ship visits with passengers interested in the science side of the Great Lakes. So when I worked for the Great Lakes Shipping Association from 1996 to 2006, cruise shipping was not a rousing business, and I, myself, dealt with a number of regulatory challenges on behalf of the vessel agents hired by a couple of cruise shipping lines. But this was the era between early passenger shipping and today. And with us today is Ralph Deal. Well, thank you again for joining us, Ralph. You know, it seems that your experience in hospitality meshes perfectly with the cruise industry, but how did you make that transition? What got you interested? Well, it's a very funny story, actually. And <clears throat> when I was in high school, I got my very first job, and it was operating a mainframe computer at a bank. And up until about 15 minutes before I started doing the cruise thing, and even during, I was uh, in the IT industry. So there was a transition that most people would find unusual, to say the least. What started it all was in 1983, I got a brochure about going on a African safari, and my mom was like, no, you're not going on that. And we looked... Uh, we looked at the brochure a little bit more and we found a cruise on the Rotterdam. And she's like, oh, we could do this, right? So we did that. And I was just amazed at the Rotterdam. And it was the technology that I was amazed at and the how hospitality was run on this vessel. And it was really extraordinary. And I thought to myself, you know, this would be fun if, if, if we could do something like this on the Great Lakes. And when I got home, I actually called the Port of Milwaukee. Can you imagine? And asked them, <clears throat> you know, what's the what's the largest vessel we can get here? Thinking, oh, maybe I could talk Holland America Line into bringing the, the Rotterdam in. Isn't that funny? And um, um, they told me, and I was disappointed, of course, because it wouldn't work. And I forgot about it for a couple of years, but still kept on reading. And I went on lots and lots of cruises. I've been on about 50 of them by now, by the way. And... Finally, in 1996, there was an article in the Milwaukee Journal Sentinel about this German cruise line coming in. And I was so excited about that. And I called the port again, and they told me who was, you know, <clears throat> working on that. And I gave them a call, and I said, oh, I'm so very interested in this. And um, it went from there. And I was still doing the, the computer thing. And I, I've just been the kind of person that if I find something interesting, I you know, again, no pun intended, I dive into it. And um, we went from there. Well, it, I, I perceive it as a pretty big leap from 
um, IT business to the cruising business. Um, but obviously, you have a passion for it. Um, and I know that you have a really great presentation. And I'm sorry that folks out there can't see some of this. And we'll post um, after the episode some of your photos that you have. But you have a really great presentation about like the I don't know, golden days, old days of cruise shipping in the Great Lakes. Um, and it's so interesting. It's fascinating, one, because the vessels are so cool looking. And um, I find that, you know, how different they are today than then. But but how did you then, is, was your passion, took you to learn about the history of cruise shipping? And, and um, how do you kind of start that conversation about what was once upon a time? Well, when one is looking at starting a business, you need to look at what other people have done in that particular industry. Um, and it's, it's uh, irrelevant as to what particular industry it is. You have to look at what's been done, what is being done, what could be done in the future. So the product that you offer will actually work and will be of interest to your potential audience. Um, which of course brings us to the second thing, who is your potential audience? And looking at the historical uh, records can also give you clues to that. So as part of my market research, looking at the history was very important. Well, absolutely, but also incredibly interesting. So let me ask you right up front, how would you define cruising in the Great Lakes? Because there's, you know, we can get on a boat and take a nice long ride, but is that cruising? How do you define cruising for the Great Lakes in our discussion? Well, when somebody goes on a cruise in, say, the Caribbean, which is what you know most of the, the population is, is familiar with, they're looking for <clears throat> fun, music, relaxation, perhaps a, a bit of adventure, but when I say adventure... Um, riding around in a fast truck or fast boat or something like that. And with a Great Lakes cruise, you're looking for <clears throat> typically more intellectual stimulation, learning about whatever, uh, experiencing um, the geography, being a little bit more attuned to the actual port, being able to meet with individuals that live there, you know, these large cruise ships that go to the Caribbean, it's conceivable you could spend an entire week on a Caribbean cruise and, and not have a single conversation with any of the locals at any of the islands. And in the Great Lakes, it is totally 180 degrees uh, different from that to uh, to steal Windstar's logo. And um, and so it's, 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 a, it's a much more intellectual experience. Are we saying cruising defined by overnight? If you if it's an overnight trip, it's it's a kind of a cruise ship. And the reason I ask that is that we know that there's been a lot of passenger vessels, um, in late 1800s um, into the 1900s, um, that were carrying passengers from one point in the Great Lakes to another, um, Chicago to Mackinac Island, Cleveland to Toledo. Um, but I don't know that those were overnight trips. So are we specifically talking about cruise ships with um, berths and places? for people to stay overnight? Oh, absolutely. Um, there were uh, three and four night cruises. There were 10, seven night cruises, 10, 11, 14 night cruises, 12 night cruises. So yes, there was a considerable amount of 
of overnight passenger movements. There were one or two vessels that would allow you to do a what's called jump on and jump off, but that for certain logistical reasons is in the long run not entirely profitable because you get an awful lot of empty cabins oh, with that, and that's just not feasible. So are we talking about ships? Let's take let's take about the past um, cruise shipping. Were the ships primarily, I want you to talk about some of those lines, were they primarily just domestic? In other words, and I mean for purposes domestic within the Great Lakes, which obviously can mean between Canada and the U.S., but that really were built for the Great Lakes, stayed in the Great Lakes, or to what extent were they international? They were exclusively U.S. flagged vessels that stayed completely within the Great Lakes and they were laid up during the off-season, and they had uh, American crew, American officers. It was entirely a domestic product, which is interesting because now what we see, well, this year and the last several years, it's a completely uh, foreign-flagged fleet. There are no U.S.-flagged vessels um, uh, coming to and, and offering cruises in the Great Lakes right now. Well, I love one of these slides. And again, folks, uh, I got this wonderful slide presentation from Ralph. And I'm going to post some of those slides with Ralph's permission um, as we give everybody the link to this podcast once it's published. Um, but I love one of them because it is an advertisement. And it's uh, trying to see it is uh, it advertises that a week's cruise for over 2,200 2, mile trip on four Great Lakes, meals and birth included on one of the big new cruising ships, the North American and South American. It costs $50. I don't know what year, I don't know what year this was. Um, I know it's always funny to talk about it when you think that it used to cost $5 a night to stay in Mackinac Island at the, at the Grand Hotel. But in any case, um, and that there's a 12-day cruise, which is $90 and 3,600-mile trip. And it says the lake trips that have no equal. I love it. Um, can Tell us a little bit about these domestic Uh, cruise ships that were in the Great Lakes? Well, the market was considerably different back then. You had, even in, well, if I could back up just a tiny bit, there was a lady who wrote a book and she published it in 1850. And she dedicated a chapter to going to Niagara Falls. And she said, traveling is all very good for the idle class, but no God-fearing Christian would ever waste their time with this idea called a vacation. And I mention that because we we can start with that. And as time went on um, and people had a little bit more um, free time and could get away from their jobs, um, the... The idea of taking a, and I put this word in quotes, vacation, became more available to what we refer to nowadays as the middle class. And these vacations, these Great Lakes cruises from, oh, 1895, I believe, was the start of regularly scheduled uh, Great Lakes cruises, believe it or not. And um, all the way up to the 1950s was a considerably different market than what we see Nowadays, it was much more um, middle class, upper middle class uh, travelers, and they weren't expecting, you know, first class on the on the Queen Mary. They entirely knew that they were going to have a modest cabin that they might be sharing a bathroom 
with somebody down the hall and that kind of thing. And they were perfectly fine with that. And that's the kind of market that, that Great Lakes Cruises attracted in the first 50 years, 50, 60 years of, of the 1900s. So it was a considerably different market, much more middle class um, than what we see nowadays. The demand back then, by the way, and I hope I'm not jumping ahead of myself, was enormous. And the number of travelers um, on the Great Lakes back then was absolutely off the off the charts. As a matter of fact, it was only until the 1970s that Miami bypassed Chicago as a Great Lake as a as a cruise port. I'm going to repeat that again. It was only in the 1970s that Miami, Florida, bypassed Chicago as a overnight cruise port. There were uh, some years uh, a quarter of a million people or more taking cruises on the Great Lakes. And this was back, you know, in the 1920s and 1930s when America had just a fraction of the population they do now. So it was hugely, hugely popular. There were vessels that were afloat uh, at that point in time that would take as many as 2,500 overnight passengers. Uh, vessels of that size in the Caribbean didn't show up until, oh boy, uh, at least the late 1970s. Uh, earlier than that, uh, even popular vessels that everybody knows about, for example, the Pacific Princess and its twin, the, the Island Princess, those maxed out at, oh, a little less than 500 passengers each. Uh, and looking through my slides, City of Detroit, three, City of Cleveland, three, um, Eastern states, those carried thousands of passengers at one time with complete entertainment packages going on. And it was it was really an extraordinary, extraordinary thing. Well, looking at the ships, um, they're very much that pointy bow ship. Folks, not unlike if you looked at the Queen Mary cruise ship built in the 30s, it's very pointy bowed, right? And and so the ships that were in the Great Lakes then um, were also very pointy bowed. So the North American and South American are, I'm guessing, kind of like smaller versions of the Queen Mary, uh, just so people have a point of reference. Um, but um, Ralph, where were these ships? These um, ships built primarily that were in the Great Lakes back then. And can, what what years are we talking about? Uh, again, it started in about 1895, and the party was pretty well over. Oh, probably the late 1950s. And these vessels were generally built at shipyards on the East Coast, and there were a couple of shipyards in, I believe, Michigan, that uh, built them, and they were generally one-off uh, one vessels. The shipyards were used to building uh, freighters, etc. So uh, they did not build a considerable number, <clears throat> a considerable number of them. There were only about 15 throughout that 50 years, maybe 20 vessels that uh, sailed in that time period. Again, they were quite large. So there, there wasn't a huge fleet and because they were quite large. Again, if you're carrying 2,500 passengers a week in, in a 20-week season, you're going to carry 50,000 people, which is 20% of the entire, um, the entire season. 
So um, again, the industry wasn't gigantic, uh, which isn't surprising, but it was still very, very significant. Yeah. So point of reference, folks, and we've talked about this a number of times on uh, North Coast Chronicles, um, that ships to get in and out of the Great Lakes have to go through the St. Lawrence Seaway and the locks, which do limit size um, because they, the, you know, the the largest ones were really built in the in the fifties, late fifties. Um, so, Ralph, is it safe to say that all of these ships that were built in the Great Lakes could not leave the Great Lakes? Uh, the North American and South American uh, were able to do that, and as a matter of fact, I believe it was the South American that was so old to another operator, and they operated it uh, out of Florida, I think, for a number of years. Wow! So there was there there were there were some a couple of them that left. Again, it was not this massive exodus. So while this isn't an overnight cruise, um, you know, the Cross Lake Michigan ferry that goes from Milwaukee to Michigan, um, you know, that's been around for, well, the newer ship's recent, yes, but that business of crossing the lake has been around a number of years. Um, When, do you know when that business kind of started, the first business of that started? That was quite a while, right? I mean, was it as early as the 30s? They were doing um, well. The first, the 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 first uh, cruise ship that I know of that that became one was the Huniata, which still exists, by the way, and it was built before the Titanic, and it's still afloat, and you can tour it in Muskegon, Michigan. And after it left, after it exited its job as a overnight cruise ship, it was converted into the Milwaukee Clipper. And then it ran, it ran across the, uh, the lake from Milwaukee to Muskegon up until, I think, 1975 or 1976. Well, thank you. I, I, I say that because that is um, a, a business um, that is still going strong right now for folks who it's a bit of like the circle coming around to the circle tour that you can kind of, uh, you know, truncate and avoid going through Chicago to get yourself up into, into the state of Michigan um, by doing that cross leg. Um, but um, so let's, let's, would you say, um, uh, let me rephrase it. Why did that business just peter out by the fifties? Well, there's two reasons for it. There are two very distinct reasons. The first reason is that the IMO, International Maritime Organization, which is a division of the UN, they started implementing more significant fire regulations and vessels with wood hulls and or wood superstructures were not allowed to sail with overnight passengers anymore. So that was the first, that was the first uh, death knell. And then the second death knell was Flying to Florida got cheap. Flying to the Caribbean got cheap. Flying everywhere got cheap. Or I should say it got cheap, uh, relatively speaking. Flying in the 1950s and 60s was still quite expensive, certainly in comparison to what it is nowadays. But it was cheaper and it was more available and more flights. And people with that kind of disposable money decided that they wanted to go to the Caribbean instead of Lake Superior. So it was those two. It was those. It was those two prongs of a fork that pretty well terminated the Great Lakes cruise industry. 
I recalled in, in thinking about this episode that there was a Laverne and Shirley episode. Everybody remembers Laverne and Shirley. It was a sitcom based um, in Milwaukee, uh, and that was uh, from the late 70s and early 80s, I think eight seasons. And one of the episodes was Laverne and Shirley going on a cruise on the Great Lakes, which just cracked me up because there wasn't such a cruise at that time. Um, but um, I found it rather adorable. It, they talked, I mean, the the, the, the premise was very much like you're on a cruise ship that you would be familiar with today and that there's activities. And Shirley got talking to one of the officers who looked so dashing in his uniform and um, and been talking to him. And uh, he had said he really wanted to take time to talk to her about something very personal. And she thought, oh, my gosh, you know, he's going to ask me to marry him or, you know, we have a future. And he very seriously said to her, do you think that I could make it in the deep sea? And, and of course, she was heartbroken. And uh, ultimately, yeah, he made the right choice, I guess, because that's where the future was, is to move out of the Great Lakes, even though it was a not a real cruise line. Anyway, I think that's kind of charming. So, so Ralph, as we as we pull ourselves more to to the um, not present day, but um, you know, twenty years ago, thirty years ago, um, the you were one of the people who stepped in to want to start a a cruise operation in the Great Lakes. Um, you weren't the only one, but uh, what timeline are we talking about? Could you tell us a little bit about that? Uh, there was a gentleman who operated the, I believe it was the Cunard Countess in the mid-1970s in the Great Lakes, and that was successful uh, in a number of ways. And after the second season, Cunard was, I guess, no longer interested in doing a six-month uh, charter for him. So that vaporized. But it was a glimpse, you know, a glimpse of what could possibly be out there. And again, he thought, and his wallet certainly understood that it was a, it was very much a success, which was, which was good news. There were some other attempts that started and never even saw the light of day. There was a, um, a, uh, a Russian icebreaker that wanted to come to the Great Lakes and the, the charter fell apart. Um, AMCV uh, uh, looked at two vessels and they built two vessels to uh, <clears throat> come to the Great Lakes and, and I think they were in for a little bit and that faded into the, uh, the sunset also without much uh, ado as the cliche goes. For uh, myself, there were, um, at that point in time, there were about 105 cruise ships on the planet that were in service. And as you pointed out before, you have to be able to get through the Welland Canal. And in talking to um, the maritime engineer that I was working with, he took a look at all of those vessels <clears throat> and there were less than a dozen on the planet at that point in time that could be allowed to go through the Welland Canal, you know, between size and technical limitations. And <clears throat> out of those dozen, um, most of them were unavailable or uh, extraordinarily expensive. And so we narrowed it down to uh, one vessel and that was a vessel that uh, that we chose um, to use on a uh, on a charter. 
so it was it was very very limited um back then and and it's funny because that's that's only been 23 24 years ago so it's not that long ago the um the um number of vessels that were available is very tiny back then so we had almost nothing to work with there were one or two other vessels that were potentials but we would have had to throw in a very very large uh chunk of money um into uh, changing them around multiple millions of dollars and the vessel owners were not necessarily all that particularly keen to the uh, extraordinary technical changes that had to be made so so those really weren't weren't like likely candidates also well tell us about the ship that you chartered well it was um it is 367 feet long and 225 passengers and it was built for the bay of biscay it was built in spain for uh, trade in the bay of biscay and this vessel has a has a rather deep draft uh inches short of 20 feet which is which is really extraordinary for a, a vessel this size and it also has a uh, a clipper bow which is what you'd find on oh the ss france the qe2 and this 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 boat was built for rough seas and um we went through um a number of storms and uh one time when i was i was on board and it rode magnificently i mean just a really really good quality safe ride and i was very happy with that uh later on when the uh, uh when the vessel was in the great lakes uh there was a storm one night and it was one of the worst storms that had ever been recorded in that time of year and there were in fact multiple people that died on private craft in that storm that night and when i talked to my onboard people uh, the next day they said oh they said you could tell that the the weather was a little choppy outside but we really didn't have any problems no no cancellations or anything at all and the passengers hardly remarked on it so in fact it was an excellent choice um when it when it comes to when it came to navigation and um storms getting through storms which of course is something that somebody should be very very careful with <laughs> uh when they're when they're choosing a vessel um first what is the name of that vessel it is it was at that point in time called the mts arcadia and its name has since been changed to a, a 7107 islands i think and okay. and it is in the philippines and a guy from holland poured a shocking amount of money into it and i've seen relatively recent pictures of it and it's a beautiful boat it's just really extraordinary well, we have talked at length about um, the weather in the Great Lakes and how the seas kick up and that it is inland seas, you know, like oceans, and that it is not for the faint of heart. Um, so you obviously picked a very good ship, but I have to ask, where, what lake was this in and um, what time of year that you had the storm? It would have been June, and it was in Lake Huron. And the uh, the seas were 
23 feet to 26, 28 feet, which obviously you certainly don't want to be in a private vessel. And uh, 20, 25 foot, 23 foot, 25 foot seas like that, even if you're in a freighter, is going to be um, not a particularly uh, pleasant uh, ride. I've been uh, on three Great Lakes cruises with other providers and vessels, and I don't want to mention the name because of, and we were in quite the storm <clears throat> in um, Lake Superior one day, and I was a bit surprised at um, the motion we had with that vessel. It wasn't bad. It's just that it was it was certainly more than I expected. So uh, yes, things can get pretty pretty crazy out there. Mind you, of course, uh, a vessel such as the Octantis at 30,000 tons and the Polaris at 30,000 tons, um, 30 and 40 foot seas, uh, it, it would go through and you would hardly notice you're even in a, in a storm. So with these, these vessels that are here nowadays, uh, the Ponant vessels with the computer designed hulls, they'll go through uh, virtually anything that Lake Superior could care to throw at it. And <clears throat> it won't be really a difficult ride at all. Well, thanks for clarifying that for folks who are thinking they'd like to take a cruise. Uh, I don't want to scare anybody away um, um, by saying that, gee, you know, don't get caught in a storm. But obviously, these new ships manage it quite well. So please make note of that, folks. Um, and, and also, um, captains are smart uh, about you know staying in port if they need to or going in the lee if they need to. Um, they don't need to um, uh, subject people to you know to um, trouble unnecessarily. Um, so, Ralph, you ran the Arcadia in what year, and um, how did it go? Give us a little bit. How, how did it go, and what happened? Well, this was a charter, so all the technical work on board was done by the vessel owner, and the crewing and the officers was done by the owner. So I was, in reality, this isn't a correct term, but I guess you could call it a super travel agent. I, I, I booked cruises, I marketed cruises, and that was mostly the, the extent of it. Um, I paid for the modifications to the Welland Canal, and that was um, a considerable amount of money, and that was, that was done. And um, we transited through the Welland Canal with absolutely no problems whatsoever. So we took possession of the vessel in Piraeus, Greece, which is the port for Athens. And we stopped at a considerable number of points, including North Africa and London and Reykjavik, Iceland, etc. And then we arrived in the Great Lakes after completing a transatlantic crossing. And um, that first time in, was the crew, was that their first time into the Great Lakes? Yes, it was. And um, was the, the Seaway folks who run the locks, were they ready? Did it go well? Oh, yes, it was flawless. There was absolutely no concerns and considerations whatsoever. I had met um, about nine months earlier with the gentleman who was the technical director for the Welland Canal, and we had multiple meetings to make sure everybody understood the uh, technical requirements, which, by the way, are significant. It's It's not... Oh, you need a light here and a paint job over here. It's 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 actually very significant, and 
the vessels that have decided to come into the Great Lakes have, have will have to spend a considerable amount of time and effort in order to be uh, well and compliant. So we had no problem with that at all. We had um, on a past episode when we were talking about the Welland Canal and the building of the Welland, we did have a chief of operations for the Canadian St. Lawrence Seaway Management Corporation and talking about, um, you know, the cruise shipping and, and how they look to it to really boon to the uh, to the system. Um, but, you know, when you came in, that was before some of the modern um, technology uh, was there. I mean, you're probably talking about uh, linesmen, people actually taking the lines um, to help you get through the system. Um, so uh, I can imagine that there was a lot. Now, folks just want to let you know that if you do want to go into the through the Great Lakes or into the Great Lakes through the St. Lawrence Seaway and those locks, there's plenty of information online to do it, even if you're a recreational boater and would like to do that, get in and see the lakes. Um, but to Ralph's point, if you're going to come in with a, a ship like he's thinking, you know, a uh, commercial ship, you do have a lot to to um, update on that ship to accommodate the Great Lakes. Um, Ralph, though, listen, how, how long did that um, did it operate? The Arcadia operate, and as the super travel agent, how did you go about selling it, and how did you decide where it was going to go? Well, the itineraries were designed by a maritime consultant that I had hired. And he had a organization called Cruising the Great Lakes and had contacted a number of port authorities. And there was uh, uh, the, the port authorities that were interested in a vessel um, uh, coming in. We added them to the list and he put together itineraries that were uh, technically feasible. You know, you can you can't do fifty eight miles an hour on a cruise ship, so you you can't have two ports that are three hundred miles away from each other. You know, in a couple of hours, silly things like that. And he suggested these itineraries, and we looked at them, and we thought this was very good. Remember again, we we had zero. We we had looked at what we talked about half an hour ago, um, itineraries that had been used in the past, and there was some patterning. Of those, there hadn't been anything in really decades. So we were operating, you know, making those kinds of decisions fairly cold. And that's just what we had to live with. Now, of course, the vessels coming in, and I can talk about this in a few minutes, they have much, much better data sets to, to use with their marketing research. But we had this historical stuff that quit in the 1950s and that's what we had to use really so it was it was much more difficult for for marketing i had made friends with an individual a lady who at that point in time and and really still is considered one of the best <clears throat> uh, hospitality marketing experts in the midwest and they assisted me uh, greatly in being able to understand and contact people i did about 300 magazine, newspaper, radio, television interviews, and there was an, a gigantic amount of uh, media attention, and we used that also, which uh, helped a considerable amount. You also have to remember, too, that in uh, 1999, uh, 2000, um, the internet was very, very new yet. You know, it, Instagram and Twitter was, you know, years and years away. 
uh, and uh, dial up was king. And so there was, there was essentially none of, of that at all as a marketing tool to use. We were sending out, we were sending out brochures in the, in the U S mail by the hundredweight. We would, we would literally send out a couple hundred pounds of brochures every day or two. And that was, that was extraordinary. And back then that's what you had to do. Well, it sounds um, massive. Um, so um, what, what were the operational challenges that you found for the Great Lakes? And the reason I ask this is that, you know, passenger vessels uh, require certain accommodations in terms of getting people on and off the ship. U.S. Customs, um, you know, if they're coming from a foreign country, which I guess would be Canada and the U.S., there are requirements. Um, not unlike you know, cruising, if you're in the Caribbean and you're in a different country and you come back to Miami, you know, you have to have to clear customs. So what were the operational challenges in the Great Lakes for, for at least for the Arcadia? Well, the U.S. customs people here in the Great Lakes were obviously not used to clearing a overnight passenger vessel. And the rules they wanted to follow were straight out of the 1910s or 1920s, and I hesitate to use uh, names of shipping lines here, although it shouldn't be difficult to find out who it was. There were there were um, one or two other lines that had had, shall we say, exceedingly unfortunate uh, experiences with uh, both U.S. customs. I had an unfortunate uh, experience with Canadian uh, customs. Uh, th- their techniques for clearing vessels were just simply not viable. Uh, you have typically eight hours to clear a, a vessel to get to get a couple hundred people off and a couple hundred people on, plus fuel and food and booze and entertainment. And I mean, there's an awful, awful lot going on in that eight hours. And um, it was uh, an unfortunate situation uh, and that was probably the the most significant challenge that we had operationally in being able to um, uh, do our cruises. Well, what's different today? Is it just that customs is better? They've got more equipment, um, you know, at kiosks that people can, you know, put their information in. Um, but what are the challenges today? And what are this, why is it uh, conceivably successful now? Well, the 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 shipping line that had the most problems had a had a considerable and very vocal meltdown <laughs> with a couple of people in the federal government and um and the they decided to adopt the florida standards if you want to call them that for uh clearing vessels uh, uh inbound and um most, if not all, of those challenges have since disappeared because of the eradication of the the previous silliness, shall we say, without getting too detailed. And so it's much cleaner nowadays, much faster, and the lines uh, are able to get on with their their tasks, um, their other tasks, and, and get those done without um, without spending more time and money and effort than they really have to. 
Could you talk a little bit about the Passenger Vessel Services Act? Um, a lot of people who know U.S. shipping do the, know the Jones Act, which is about U.S. flag shipping and going from one U.S. port to another. But cruise ships are specifically uh, managed under the Passenger Vessel uh, Cruise Act. Could you talk about that and how it impacts the Great Lakes? Well, it's a very, very funny thing. The That act, which started... And, and I'm looking it up right now, the U.S. Passenger Services Act of 1886. And that was started because of passenger services on the Great Lakes. It was not started because of service out of, say, New York City or Miami or something. It was the Great Lakes. And specifically, it was to, to put it bluntly, to keep Canadian operators from running vessels to Mackinac Island. And that is where the U.S. Passenger Services Act came from, is to keep, keep, keep the Canadians away from, um, keep the Canadians away from Mackinac Island, which um, is pretty funny, I think. Actually. Yeah, that blow me away. I had no idea in dealing with it. And when and speaking of customs, I do recall having to explain to a customs agent back in um, back when I was with the uh, the shipping association in the Great Lakes that it wasn't a Jones Act issue; it was a Passenger Vessel Act issue, and and how it worked. They truly didn't understand. So clearly, a lot of education had to go into it. And and believe me, folks, folks in the Great Lakes worked very hard with Congress. Um, I was actually became almost a pretty close friend of the head of uh, operations for U.S. Customs in Washington just because we talked all the time. And in some respects, I hope I was the bane of his existence. He's retired now, God bless him. So uh, he, he doesn't have to deal with it. But um, now today, um, uh, it seems like th things are kind of under control. And one of them is um, explain to people who want to take a cruise how the the, the, the voyage is set up. Why you start in one country and end in another country? Well, there is, as we just talked about, the U.S. Passenger Vessel, the Passenger Services Act of 1886, excuse me, and Canada has uh, its equivalent, the Coastwise Trading Act of 1992. Both of these, the, the idea of where a vessel can go and how it can take people around the technical term for that is, and this is your word of the day, cabotage, C-A-B-O-T-A-G-E, cabotage. So both of those rules, sets of rules, control uh, cabotage in the maritime industry. So we had the rather interesting situation since we just bounced between the two uh, countries that we had to follow the rules of both countries simultaneously, which limits, unsurprisingly, the style of itineraries that you can take. And I would like to, at this point in time, perhaps give you some examples of how that works. That'd be great. If you start in the U.S. and you're on a foreign vessel, I should have, I should have explained that first. You have to uh, visit a foreign port if you want to come back to the U.S. Well, none of the Canadian ports constitutes a foreign port. 
interestingly enough, even though they're in a foreign country. Uh, federal regulations actually list what constitutes a foreign port, by the way, and you can look that up if you want. So if you leave from the U.S., you have to leave and you can't come back, which is interesting. So with Canada, it was the same thing. If you left from Canada, you'd have to leave. And I believe that they have actually changed that, that Canada has actually changed their cabotage laws uh, within just the last few years. And if you leave from Canada, I believe you can come back to Canada. I haven't, I haven't checked on that entirely. Interestingly enough, I asked somebody who would be an expert in that kind of thing, <clears throat> and he was not entirely sure himself, which I want to add parenthetically. Um, when I was operating, there was a tremendous amount of confusion, even amongst the federal authorities, as to what kind of voyage was legal and what kind of voyage wasn't legal. So on top of this, you can leave, but you can't come back. That sounds like a pop song from, you know, the Eagles. Um, the, the other th thing is that only certain ports on the American side, and Canadian too for that matter, have customs facilities. And customs facilities, there are um, type A, type B, type C, and I think possibly type D. And only different, only certain procedures can be done depending upon what type of customs facility it is. So if you want to go from Canada to the U.S. and first call in a American port that has a type C customs facility or no customs facility at all, you can't do that. You have to call first at an American port with a type A customs facility. Are you following all this? <laughs> yes, I am. And I guess for the listeners, we're talking about a terminal and, and the type of terminal you have. And passengers require very specific types of terminals. You don't intermix. Someone, passengers can't walk out and then go on to a cargo um, dock where they're walking between steel coils. Um, that's just not how it works, right? So there are requirements um, um, of you know safety, keeping people on and off because you cannot just have people willy-nilly coming off, on and off the boat. I mean, so, I mean, it sounds complicated and it is for someone like you who wanted to set up these kind of tours. I, th I think though, for our listeners, it's, it's, it's gotten pretty streamlined. And as these ports, even especially small ports, um, uh, have a lot of ship calls, they've gotten better and better. And customs has gotten a little bit better about about not you doesn't have to be a schmancy terminal, right? Um, I think Detroit has a, a pretty fancy terminal, and there's probably others, but it doesn't have to be something that looks like you're getting on in Cape Canaveral uh, or Port Canaveral. It you know there are things that you need fencing and certain things, um, but it can be accommodated. And I think that, like you said, customs learned and the operators have learned. Um, so I think for those that want to take a cruise, I wouldn't concern yourself with with it because I think it's pretty. Um, like I said, streamlined. Um, but um, you are you do get to go in the Great Lakes into very kind of these very um, you know um, pastoral ports, um, not just into the big city ports. And I think that's one of the great advantages of the Great Lakes. Like you said early on in this conversation, that the Great Lakes is very special. 
Um, and it isn't um, just about the food, although I'm sure the food is terrific. It is about getting close with the people, learning learning about the area, whether it's a science side or or a tourist side that appeals to you. Um, and the variety of ports is amazing. Um, I'm going to ask you a question, Ralph, that has kind of always been curious to me. Um, I guess the first part of what ship companies are coming in right now, let's say in 2023, we talked about them briefly. Um, and are sh- companies like, you know, the big lines coming in, like the ones that we get on down in, in Miami, the ones that we're used to, you know, whether they're celebrities or Norwegian cruise lines or, or Carnival, um, are those ships also, those companies coming into the lakes? And why or why not? Well, I've had extensive hours and hours and hours of discussions with one of the most senior executives at one of the largest lines. Okay, the largest line. And they do not find, because of their business model, the Great Lakes to be potentially feasible. Is that just about the size of ships? They need bigger ships in there? Is that what that's about? Uh, yes, that. And, um, oh, for example, and here's pulling something out of the air. Uh, we're talking about, you know, customs and regulations. There's something called the Johnson Act of 1950-something. And the, the Johnson Act does not allow the interstate transport of gambling equipment. So you cannot have, theoretically, you're not even supposed to have one of those little cages that that spins um, bingo balls around. Uh, A cruise ship carrying one of those ridiculous things, that's actually illegal. They look the other way in that particular case, but they're not supposed to. So roulette wheels, one-armed bandits, all that jazz, just transporting it, even if it's wrapped up, is not allowed. And operating a casino certainly is not allowed. Uh, There are no international waters in the Great Lakes, for example, Lake Superior. The Canadian border comes right up to the U.S. border. So there's no international waters that you can can operate a casino in. And these larger lines, a very, very significant amount of their revenue comes out of their uh, casinos. So if you had to eliminate that, that immediately puts a a very big financial pinch on them. And that's the reason why you will never see the large operators uh, here in the Great Lakes. I can add also the operators that are coming in, um, Hapag Lloyd, Plan Tours, those are German lines. Germans, generally speaking, don't run the casinos and spend money. So so those two operators don't care. Viking doesn't have any casinos on board. Um, Panant isn't entirely interested. Uh, so these people who are coming in, uh, their business plan does not con- include uh, casinos and that kind of uh, thing. So they're not they're not overly concerned that you can't have that. Wow, I just never even thought about the casino angle, right? Because I'm not a big gambler. Um, wow, uh, that makes a lot of sense. But it also makes sense that, like you said, the German lines and Viking and those that just don't have casinos on anyway um, fit much more comfortably uh, with the Great Lakes model. Wow, thank you. That's so interesting. Absolutely. I wanted to mention something also, too, and I'm, I'm really actually rather passionate about it. I had a lot of calls about, because you used to see this, um, crews th- throwing garbage off the back of boats, you know, in the Caribbean and all that kind of jazz. Um, here in the Great Lakes, 
and we're very, very passionate about this. Uh, the Great Lakes are a zero discharge area. <clears throat> Nothing comes off that vessel. And you will find the captain tearing, tearing into a passenger if they're found throwing a cigarette overboard. It, it, they're, they're very, very careful about that. And I want, I want to make sure that's completely underlined. That especially since virtually all of these newer vessels, they have a very good top-of-the-line latest uh, equipment um, for uh, discharging, which does not happen at all. So there's no oil discharge. There's no gray water discharge. There's certainly no black water discharge. Uh, there's no garbage discharge of any kind. Um, and the fuel consumption um, and um, emissions, all of these vessels are either type three or type four uh, diesels, which have very, very low emissions. Certainly, it, it makes uh, I, I didn't I didn't calculate this, but it would be interesting to find out how many automobiles it would take to be the equivalent of the Viking running. And you know, and I'm going to just guess here, my guess is it would only take three or four regular automobiles that would put out more noxious gases than the 30,000 ton Viking. Isn't that amazing? It's absolutely amazing. And I, I thank you for adding that. I think it's for our listeners in particular, especially on ASPN, these are the kind of things that matter to them. So it's a conscientious traveler and uh, that was interested in the Great Lakes. And fuel consumption is considerably less too, by the way. That's good to know as well. And and Ralph, I, I'm so sad that we're to the end of our time. Um, I you, There's so much more to talk about, but I think we get, uh, I think everybody clearly understands the nature of the business in the Great Lakes, or at least has a touch of it. Um, and I do hope that people you know, want to um, take a trip on the Great Lakes because, of course, I love it so much. But as we close out, is there anything that you would like, any takeaway that you would like to share with our listeners? Um, no, not particularly, I guess. I could have talked for another 20 or 30 hours, actually, certainly about the technical, um, technical details. Uh, and requirements involved. These operators do an awful lot of work, you know, to be able to bring these vessels in. And people like Torsten Hagen running Viking, he's not just doing this to, you know, see how much money he can make. He's doing it because he wants to do it and he wants to be able to provide people with great experiences. I know that sounds like an advertisement, but that really, really is true. And um, so if people get the opportunity to go on one of these and to be able to participate and keep the industry going, um, I really do greatly encourage that. It's ecologically a great way to go. You'll learn a lot. The people in the ports are are wonderful, and they really appreciate and understand uh, the amount of effort uh, that goes into this kind of uh, thing. And uh, we should keep that aware of that. Thank you, Ralph. And Thanks so much for joining us today. It was really fun. And I hope we get to talk again in the future. Thank you very much. I, I had a great time too. Well, this wraps up another episode of North Coast Chronicles, Tales from the Great Lakes. The creation and content for North Coast Chronicles is by me, Helen Brohl, and co-produced and engineered by Tyler Buckingham of the American Shoreline Podcast Network. The sea shanty for our podcast was recorded by Catherine Chambers. Please send me your comments, ideas for future podcasts, or to be a sponsor to northcoastchronicles at gmail.com. 
Join us next time on North Coast Chronicles as we continue our Great Lakes adventure. Until then, be good to one another. Mm-hmm.